Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed from the University School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We are joined for this episode by Texas State Distinguished Alumnus, Eugene Lee, who is currently artist in residence in the Texas State Department of Theater and Dance. Mr. Lee is a nearly 50-year veteran of the stage, film, and television, having appeared in more than 200 television movies and series alone, in addition to his writing credits and work on the stage across the globe. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the focus of our conversation in this episode is on the Black and Latino Playwrights Celebration, which is an annual event um, in its 18th year now um, that takes place at Texas State, of which you're the artistic director. Before we get into that, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get into acting and writing and what drew you to it? Oh, wow. Uh, Somebody told me a long time ago that I was pretty good at it. I did a play in high school and I came to Southwest Texas State in 1970, and my major was pre-law, uh, political science. My minor was drama. I ended up flipping those and <laughs> graduating with a double major. Uh, I taught high school in Fort Worth, Texas for four years after I graduated in 74, and eventually moved out to Los Angeles, committed to having a career as an actor, and I have not looked back. <laughs> I, I moved to New York about a year after that and worked in New York with the Negro Ensemble Company and did the daytime soap opera with the Guiding Light for a couple of years and did a bunch of off-Broadway plays and went back to LA and did some writing and television. I've, I've had a pretty blessed journey, if, if I can say so myself, only because I kind of didn't quit. I stayed in line, as they say, and I didn't get out of line because in this business, somebody gets out of line in front of you every minute and you get to move up a little bit. So I stayed in line. In a nutshell, that's what I've been. I've been lucky. I've been blessed. I brought some stuff to the table, too. I brought a work ethic that I think has had a lot to do with whatever success that I've been able to achieve. I mean, I grew up in a Texas that was segregated, and uh, I never sat in a room with a white person until I was in the 10th grade. And so I was taught by all Black teachers in rooms with all Black students that I was in America, and especially in Texas, I was going to have to do 300% just to get noticed. I saw those signs come down. I was the first and usually the only, if you know what I mean, for a lot of my young adult life. So yeah, that kind of instilled in me a stick to that and a work ethic that says, you know, you, you get out what you put in. So early on in your career, as you began and you came from that background, having experienced that segregation and racism growing up, did you carry that with you? The fact that, you know, that you were obviously yourself, but representing your community and did that drive you at all to reach those heights? I remember many times being told to be a credit to my race if you know what I mean, to bring some pride and some, to, some dignity to, to, uh, to whatever it was that I did uh, so, as, uh, so as to not misrepresent. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that too, because I'm curious, you know, I was born in the early 1980s. And so for people of my age, what you're talking about seems far away or, or removed from clearly my experience as a younger person, as a white person. But I'm wondering what it was like in in the early 70s when you started acting, you know, were you relegated, to use a word, I suppose, 
to certain roles? And, and have you seen that change in, in a way over the, over the last 50 years? Oh, I've definitely seen a change. And there was a certain degree of relegation. You know, I, I, early on, I had a lot of auditions for characters that didn't have names, you know, like Junkie Number One or <laughs> uh, Low Life Junkie Snitch or, you know, Informer Number Two or, or, or Gang Member Number One or, you know, they, they didn't have names. They were just characters and, and, and more often than not one-dimensional characters that were kind of like tools in the storytelling. But yeah, I have seen that change. There's, a, there's much more demand for stories and for honest stories you know, and truthful stories with authority, in, which is one of the reasons why I write, so that the history isn't revisionist history, so to speak, and so that it does have an ounce of truth in it, uh, maybe even a pound of truth, be all true, but to set the record straight and to, and, and to cross some cultural, some cultural lines, some cultural uh, chasms. I mean, I think that's how we bridge these, these differences between us, by sharing what those differences are. And if I can write a, if I can write a play or present a character that gives someone who might be bigoted or prejudiced some insight into who I am and the, and, and the common denominators that we share, then I've, I've sort of torn down that wall of mistrust. Because yeah, I did come out of my youth with, I wasn't raised to trust white people, for example. I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't, I was never told that, but I understood it, that that was not something, I, I wasn't raised to, to, to rely on the police, you know, to protect or serve me, if you know what I mean. Uh, I, I was raised to deal with police in a totally different way than, than, than I'm certain you were. So yeah, it's taken some years and maybe a little bit of therapy for me to get past the mistrust. I don't want to call it hate, you know, because that's, I don't know that that's what it is. When I think hate, I think I wish you weren't here. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, and I'm not there. I'm, I'm, I'm not there. I can't, I don't, I don't respond to hate with hate necessarily. I, you know, I did grow up in the time of Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movement. So that also had a huge impact on who I am and how I am. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I put a lot of that stuff. I laid a lot of that by the side of the road as I moved on. Is art therapy in yeah, that regard? Def definitely. It's for a lot of people, especially when it's new information. I mean, you know, I've seen people see plays about black people and realize, oh my God, I didn't know that. And I think that's when people change is when they get new information. I, because I, I'm, I'm sort of convinced that the average bigot or the average racist, you know, or, the, or someone who is not anti-racist, they can't tell you why they hate black people. It's just something that they've swallowed all their lives, something that they've lived with, something that they've watched and never questioned. Uh, I found that to be true. And when, we, and when they tear down that wall and look real closely at themselves and the source of that hate, there is no source. There is no legitimate, no logical reason for it. None whatsoever. You know, all the white supremacy ideas, you know, they come from a long, long gone, long gone lie, long ago lie. So yeah, I, 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 it's, it's great for me to watch this new generation that's repelling all that stuff. They're not buying it. They're not buying it. And I, I remind all my conservative and bigoted and white friends that your grandchildren are going to be brown. You know, yeah, all the flag waving, all the anger, all the stuff in the world is not going to change that, you know? So, yeah. What in your career 
is your proudest accomplishment? Not necessarily maybe the piece that you're proudest of, and it could be, but when you look back on your time in television, film, the stage, in all the roles that you've played, whether it's as an actor or a writer, what are you most proud of? Um, surviving uh, for real and staying in it and achieving whatever little bit of success and longevity that I've been able to achieve, you know, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't decide to be an actor so I could become rich and famous. I, I, I that was, that was never on my, that was never a target that I aimed. I figured that would happen if some other things happened. But I, I wanted, first of all, to be the best artist that I could be. I wanted to be the best I could be at what I do. Uh, and I wanted respect, I, you know, because I always believe that, you know, people can like you today and then not care about you tomorrow. But if they respect you, they, 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 that, that lingers for, for a while. So I, I just kind of wanted the, I wanted those things and, and you know, and, and to have some longevity. I, wanted, I decided I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And that I was going to do whatever I needed to do to make sure that that happened. And I think that's what any person with any kind of career-minded sense about them does. You know, I don't believe you ever hit anything that you don't aim at. Uh, so I pointed myself in a direction, and I was not going to be discouraged. Did you enter art? You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you start off as pre-law and that drama was a minor. What precipitated that change? Was it the passion for art? Was it, a, or a combination maybe of your ability to affect change? I, I think it may have been a combination of those things. I may have been a little bit of me deciding that I thought that that would be an easier route to take than trying to go to law school and, and, and et cetera. And it, I just followed my heart more than anything, man. I, I really felt good about what was happening when I was, when I was on stage or when I was being creative and artistic. I felt fulfilled in a way that, that just propelled me to, to say, okay, this is what I want to do. I, I could have made a lot more money being a lawyer. That, you know, that's, that's very clear. But as I said, I, I, that, wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to be happy. I was trying to find something to spend the rest of my life being happy doing. Happiness and passion, very, very important. That's what I always tell my students. There's not a lot of money in journalism. You, yeah. have, to be, you have to be passionate and happy, yeah. happy about it, you know, and, and want to do it. And if you want to do it and you're, you're passionate, you can make a good career out of it. So let's get into the Black and Latino Playwrights Celebration. You know, just for transparency for our audience, this interview was recorded before the celebration began on August 31st. By the time this episode is uploaded and you're listening to it, the conference will have ended on September 6th. So we're not going to get into so much, you know, what you're seeing this year clearly with the folks that came. But let's start here. Let's Talk about, tell us a little bit about what the celebration is and what its purpose is. The mission statement that I came up with for this particular project is to study the craft of playwriting, to nurture the craftsman, the playwright, and to celebrate the work. And those are three objectives that we have every year. Every year, uh, we try to have activities, I, I call it pulling all the wagons into a circle to look at the state of the art you know, discussions about playwriting, discussions about playwrights, discussions about plays and structure. Uh, we do a playwriting workshop where people come and they write a 10 minute play. So those kinds of conference-like activities we have, we've discussed topics like black women in plays 
or women in black plays or it's or with a particular writer but just to take a look at the state of the art and and, and have discussions and panels and symposiums that look at where black theater is and and where it's come from because we also do a tribute to some pioneer from black or latino player theater on, on the friday of every year but the big part of what we do is the new play development workshops where recently I've gotten up to 200, over 200 scripts a year submitted for consideration, which says to me that we're filling a void because there is a need for writers of color to have opportunities and resources to, to develop their work. You know, plays don't just happen. There's a process to what I call finding a play. You know, you don't just sit down and write it out and it, and it exists. There's a whole process. Writers sit down by themselves in a little room and put these words on a page, but there, there comes a collaborative phase of finding a play when other theater artists have to come in and, and actors, directors, designers, stage managers to help that playwright find out what the export of his play is or her play is, what people take away from the play. Because when you hear it coming out of somebody else's mouth into your ears, it's, it's, it oftentimes becomes better or worse, you mm -hmm. know, depending on, on the context or whatever. So what we do is I bring in a play, I picked two plays, one play by a black playwright and one play by a Latino playwright. And we're able to bring in the playwright, a professional director, one professional actor for each of the plays and dramaturgical support in terms of, of a dramaturge for each of the plays. And then we finish out the casting of the plays with students from the theater department. So what this project does is sort of bridge the academic world and the professional world and gives these students an opportunity to what I call get in the trenches with a new play. And you know, of all the 200 or whatever plays that I read, I'm looking for a voice. I'm looking for an unproduced, what I call embryo of a play that needs work, not a play that's been produced and on Broadway. We're looking to help develop a new play. That's where the learning happens with these students, where they find out what their job is as an actor in terms of helping a playwright find their play. And I bring those in and they rehearse for a week. They rehearse Monday through Thursday or Friday for about four or five hours each week, each night. And I've seen playwrights come in on Monday and on Tuesday show up Tuesday evening with a whole new second act or change a character or take a character out and put them back in on Thursday or change the gender of a character mm -hmm. or combine two characters. And I encourage the writers when they come here, I say, if you want to go back to what you had when you first came here, you're welcome to do that. But why not take advantage of these resources to sort of expand your voice, to shout where you whispered and see what happens, you know, to give you an opportunity as a writer to grow and fearlessly, you know, because I think that's important too. You know, a lot of times plays get produced and, you know, you worry about what the critics are going to say. And this is a safe place. This is a place where the word rehearsal, if you look at it, it's re-hear, mm -hmm. where you hear it again. And you hear it again, and that's how you take and shape a play by rehearing it time and time again. And, and so, the, and what we do is we we study the craft, and we nurture the playwright by providing the playwright with some, with resources to help them hear their play. And then we celebrate that work with a script in hand reading on the weekend for a live audience. And that live audience gets to do feedback to the playwright and let the playwright know what resonated with them. I, I sort of monitor those callbacks and those talkbacks. And I say, I don't, I don't need you to come up after the play and say, well, I think he should have, or I think she should have. No, 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 no. All I want to know is what rang true? 
That's what I want the playwrights to leave here with in terms of the export of their play is what made sense to the audience, what resonated with them. And in a nutshell, that's what it is. That's what we do. And a number of these plays have gone on to professional productions and won awards. And these playwrights have gone on to write other plays as well. You know, I've got testimonials from a bunch of them that say that this experience was pivotal in terms of where they went after they left here as writers. And it's also life-changing for these students in a way, you know, the insight they get into the professional work ethic and the standards, even down to being on time for rehearsals. And we've had a couple of students that were fired from the readings. And those very same students have gone on to work on Broadway and in New York because they learned, <laughs> they learned the hard way that about the standards that you need to adhere to in order to, to have some longevity in this business. And you touched on, you know, the, the bridging that gap between academia and the real world. And clearly that's our mission here at the university in the departments that you work in and that I work in and across university to give that real world experience within the classroom where, as you said, it is a safe space. But you touched on this a little bit when we talked about your background, um, but I think it's important to, to refocus it and, and bring it back to this. How important is this conference or conferences like this in terms of giving voice to minority artists in communities and developing that artistic community and confidence in their work in order so that their voices can be heard on the larger stage in the world, in the country, in whichever medium they choose? I think it's vital. I mean, you know, playwrights document the human condition. Basically, that's what they do. They, they hold mm -hmm. a mirror up to the human condition and let us get a look and an in-depth look at character, at character change, at strengths and weaknesses, flaws. You know, there's tragedy, there's comedy, we laugh, we cry, we sing, but it's all a part of the human condition. What's wonderful about what we do is, not just for the writers, but for the students in the community who come, the black and brown people who see themselves on stage, who see their stories being told, it's empowering in a wonderful kind of way, I think, just in terms of, of instilling some human dignity and some pride and some cultural pride. You know, it's, it, there people change when they, you know, the, what, what is it? Learning is defined by the psychologist as a change in behavior. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of learning that happens during this week. Black and brown students find out often something about their culture, about their music, about their food, about their about their history, about their dance, about their relationships, about, about their place in America, about their place in their homes that they didn't know prior to this week. And that same kind of learning happens for the white students who get an inside view at, some, at a place that they've never been. They get to crawl around inside a culture in a way and look in the nooks and crannies and look, in, and look at the strengths and the weaknesses and recognize, oh damn, I got the same, that's like me. In that respect, I think it, it not only empowers the minority students, but it also empowers the white students. Because, you know, I think historically they've thought that these stories had nothing to do with them. Or, or more often than not, white people didn't want to go see a black play because they felt like they were going to be the, the bad guys, that they were going to be the villains. But when they go see a play, like my play, East Texas Hot Links, which is about self-hate, it opens up a whole new piece of wisdom <laughs> you know, about, about our relationships. And, and I think that's, that, that's one of the merits about what this project does. 
is it is about bridging those cultural chasms. It is about these these students learning about themselves, and it is about these other students learning about <clears throat> someone that they don't learning something new about someone else that they don't know. Uh, it is life altering for a lot of these students, and not just black and brown, but gay, LGBTQT, all of those all of those uh, domestic violence. You know, I always try to challenge the students with the scripts that I pick. Whether it's the language, you know, because I love it when the Latino players have Spanish in them and music, if you know what I mean. So I also try to challenge them on contemporary issues when I can, you know, because a lot of plays do deal with or not afraid to, to go into places like sexual assault, sexual harassment. And, you know, those hot button topics that resonate today. That's, that's a wonderful thing about what we do in theater. It's necessarily political. <laughs> If you know what I mean, it's it's hard to deal with the human condition and, and avoid politics. And, and nowadays, you know, for 18 years, you've done this conference and clearly your career spans almost 50 years longer than that, including your time in college. But how important is it now more than ever to have that kind of education, not only for the playwrights and the actors, but for the audience as well to force, not force people, but people, I suppose, into zones that either, like you said, they're not comfortable with or not aware of in order to create more dialogue and to, again, you know, blunt some of what we're seeing now. It's very important. I, it, it's, it, it's critical. It's vital that, that, and you know, and I don't think it takes pushing necessarily. It just means it's just about providing it. You know, it's almost like that thing, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> I, I'm convinced that what's ailing America's soul right now is not going to be fixed in a public moment. It's not. It's going to be 350 million private moments where people sit alone with their hearts and decide that they're going to take the hate out of their hearts. And that's for 350 million Americans, all of them, privately at some point doing that. Now, it may be that a play is a catalyst for them sitting down and given the fodder with which to, to change their souls, so to speak. And there's a, there's a need for that on there. You know, there's a lot of good people on both sides, if I can quote <laughs> 45. But, but I think you understand what I'm saying when I say that it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen in a public discussion. It's not gonna happen at a play. It's gonna happen when they go home after they see that play and they're sitting with just themselves and say, okay, I gotta change. Let's talk briefly, because you've eloquently described the impact that this has on students and playwrights of color and the art community itself. But the conference this year is clearly different in this time of social distancing. How did you go about reworking this year's event where normally you have people in a theater and you're working close by and you know that interaction that you would normally have? How have you changed that and how does that affect what you do? It just like what you just said, we're not face to face and we're finding ways to try to compensate for some of the lack of sensory participation, for example. And a lot of theaters are having to do that now. It's a new day. I'm, I'm convinced it's not a permanent, con a permanent condition. Uh, this is theater. It, theater will come back to what it was once we get past all of this. But for now, we've got to, we've been finding creative ways. I've had two of plays that I've written done virtually in readings over this past summer. So there, the, the technology is there. 
and people are at different places all over the country and, and all working on the same play, all rehearsing the same play. So the technology exists and we can do it. And this is a reading. And that's, that's the other thing. This isn't a production. It's not like we're trying to fully mount and you know, do costumes and lights and all that other stuff for a play. It's just, it's just a reading. And what we do in this week, we just barely have time to deal with the needs of the script and the storytelling from, you know, from structural things to nuance sort of quality to the writing. So, yeah, we can do, and I've seen it done. The only issue is, not the only issue, but one of the issues is the technology and, and flaws in the technology. For example, we will be recording these readings before we stream them live. And the only thing that'll be live will be the Q and A's after the reading. Because you know how glitches happen and these things fall out. So we will record like the last rehearsal toward the end of the week. And that's what we'll stream when we do these. So we're finding ways to make adjustments using the technology. I'm ignorant about the technology. And thank God there are students and faculty members at the Texas Tech <laughs> Department of Theater who, you know, who have a handle on all that. But I don't think it changes the impact. In fact, in many ways, I find that it may make it more intimate for people because it is close up. It very much is that. But yeah, we're adjusting. As we all are adjusting. That's kind of the theme of 2020, I think. So before we wrap up here, I'll give you an opportunity just to discuss anything that you're working on, anything your students are working on that the, the general public may be interested in or, or have an opportunity to attend or, or see. Well, wow. Well, the tribute this year is to is to an African-American, actually, he's a Caribbean-born American, African-American uh, uh, playwright, Gus Edwards, whose work I've done in New York in the past, the Negro Ensemble Company. And we're doing a tribute to him, including some excerpts from, from some of his works, from some of his plays, and from a movie he wrote, an adaptation of a James Baldwin book, Go Tell It on a Mountain. He's a provocateur of a sort. He's a brilliant playwright. His use of language is one that I think everyone will find attractive and, and poetic in a heightened sense. That's one thing that, that Nadine Mazon is working on with some students. You know, she does a tribute every year. She does a wonderful job of bringing to life some of examples of the works of the people that we are paying tribute to. And that's the objective of what that particular thing is, is to expose these South Texas audiences to once again a voice they hadn't heard and some storytelling that they hadn't had the experience of, of hearing before. You know, I'm working on a bunch of stuff. I've got two new plays that I'm writing. One about the first two black police officers in Houston to arrest a white man, but I'm spinning it a little bit. He's not really a white man. He's a black man who's been passing. So we've got some interesting drama that happens there. Because, you know, for a long, just, as, just from a historical perspective, for a long time, there've always been black cops in Houston. They were limited to the Fifth Ward or to wherever the ward they were working in. They couldn't go downtown. They couldn't arrest a white man. So when that first one happened, I always thought That's, that was a pivotal, that was a change. That was one of those inflection points. But then once I started writing the story, I said, no, I got to spin it a little more and make it just up the ante, so to speak. My other play, which, was, which will be done in New York, it was supposed to be done at Queens Theater in New York starting April 11th, but the pandemic sort of put that off for a while. Uh, but whenever they get back, I, we anticipate hopefully within a year, they'll be back producing and this play will be done. And that play is called Lion Ass. And it's about a fictional first black female Texas Ranger, which is a seeming contradiction in terms, black female Texas mm -hmm. Ranger. That's a white man's world. But this play is about the lies that we live in, the lies that we live with. 
And the play is really about mental illness, undiagnosed mental illness, people who have been impacted by trauma in their lives and they live in lies. You know, they, they find their peace in the stories that there's an old man who lost his wife and daughter and he sits out in front of the barbecue place or the barbershop or wherever and he just tells stories. They call him Texas Tuxedo and his tales. But that's where he finds his happiness, if you know what I mean. And uh, I've got four characters in this play who all are living in another reality in a strange kind of way in response to a trauma. In the end, they find themselves, they find the truth. The premise of that play was in order to sell a lie, it's gotta have an ounce of truth. So if you line up 12 lies, you've also lined up 12 ounces of truth. Hmm. So this play is about these four people getting to the truth about themselves by way of their lives. Very interesting. I think, love to see it. Honestly, the works that you're talking about, just again, speak to so much in what's happening now, what's happened in the past, and also, as as we've talked about, providing that glimpse into a a different world, and not necessarily a different world, but a world many of us aren't familiar with and a reality that many of us aren't familiar with. And again, that's the power of art. I'll leave with this quote that I think kind of sums everything up that we've talked about, this quote from John F. Kennedy, if art is to nourish the roots of our culture, society must set the artist free to follow his vision wherever it takes them. And I think that encapsulates what we've talked about, this idea of art as nourishing our culture, the playwright celebration, allowing the artists to explore their art in a way that sets them free to then elevate the game and society in general. So, Mr. Eugene Lee, thank you so much for joining us. This was an excellent interview, and we're so glad to have you on our faculty, on our campus, working with our students and mentoring the next generation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. This has been big fun. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. 